Amateur Traveler Podcast, Episode 36. Welcome to the Amateur Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Christensen. Today in the show, we go to Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please store your carry-on luggage under the seat in front of you and or in the overhead bin. The interview I have today with Chuck on Egypt uh, will go a little longer, so I'll be skipping over the news section of the show today, and here we'll go straight into the interview with Chuck. All right, I'd like to welcome on the show today uh, Chuck, who just recently got back from Egypt, and I've been trying to get him on the show for, well, a little while. I guess you uh, went in November? Correct. And and what led you to to go to Egypt? Has, has this been a trip long in planning? or? Well, it's been long in thinking about, but it was actually very, very quick in planning. <laughs> uh, both my wife and I have, um, have had a long-term interest in antiquities. We've been to, to Greece and Italy and um, Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, Belize, Guatemala. We've seen a lot of those ancient civilizations and the ruins that they've left behind. And in Egypt was, was just kind of always on the top of our list. It was one of those places that just kind of epitomized to us the the whole concept of, of archaeology and, and ancient civilizations. So as I said, we've been thinking about it for a long time, but it was last minute in planning because I was actually scheduled to go on a scuba diving trip in the Caribbean in the middle of October, and with all the hurricanes that were going oh, on sure. down there, that got canceled. But because I had that week's vacation allocated at the company, I wasn't going to give it up. <laughs> so when my wife said, well, why don't we go to Egypt? I said, well, you know, with the political situation there, I thought you wanted to put that off until things got better. And she said, things probably aren't going to get any better anytime soon, so let's just go now. So in probably not more than four, maybe six weeks, we put the whole trip together and got on a plane and went. And where all did you go in Egypt? We started out with a couple of days in Cairo, doing the Egyptian museum there, and of course the pyramids and sphinx out at Giza. Then we got up incredibly early in the morning to take three different airplanes all the way down to the southern border of the country to uh, Abu Simbal, which is where the temple for Ramses and his queen Nefertari are. It, it took us like four hours of airplane trips in order to get there by 10.30 in the morning. And then from there, we did you know all of the ruins and temples and so on in Abu Simbal, got on a boat and uh, cruised north, which is downriver on the Nile, uh, we took about five days, stopped at all of the, I shouldn't say all, because there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of, of temples, but we stopped at about eight different archaeological sites along the Nile River over a five-day period, and uh, ultimately end up in Luxor, 
where we spent uh, several days visiting the uh, Valley of the Queens and the Valley of the Kings and the Luxor Museum and a few of the other places and temples that were there. And then uh, we kind of transitioned into the R&R portion of the trip, <laughs> took a, uh, a plane over to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, where, which is kind of a European resort location. I did a couple of days of scuba diving while my wife sat by the swimming pool, and then we finished up with a day trip to St. Catherine's Monastery and Mount Sinai, which surprisingly they refer to as Mount Moses, and uh, then a 26-hour marathon trip all the way back home. (laughs) Now, when you're on, when you're cruising down the Nile to Luxor, I tried to talk uh, Joan one time into a a trip where we would sleep on the deck of a uh, a felucca. You're not doing that trip, as I recall. No, no, this was not a felucca. As a matter of fact, because this was a very last-minute planned trip, the only cabin that was available on the boat was the the King's Suite, <laughs> and. Uh, which was probably the most luxurious accommodations that we've ever had on a boat. <laughs> okay. And what was the highlight of the trip? Or what, what were some of the highlights of the trip? Well, Deborah would tell you that the, the Temple of Ramses was absolutely uh, the highlight. And I would agree. That was certainly the first highlight in, in my mind because... First of all, we had just come from Cairo, which is really a great, big, huge, kind of modern city with all of the issues of modern cities with smog and traffic and and noise and so on. We went all the way to the southern end of the country, and we're in the middle of the desert. There's this oasis. There's this beautiful lake created by a dam that was built on the Nile River, and it's like we were just transported back in time, and you walk down this path around this mountain to the front side of these temples, and it's like, wow, it is enormous. There's these four colossus statues of Ramses on, on two on either side of the entrance to the temple. And it just absolutely knocked our breath away. Hmm. How how large? What what is the scope of the the temple? They're, as I recall, they're forty feet tall. Okay. Um, and there there are four of them. As I said, two on each side of the entrance to the temple. And when you go inside the temple, all of the walls, all of the ceilings, the the columns, everything is covered with carved hieroglyphics and pictograms and storyboards and so on, and it's just awesome to see it all there, and it's not difficult to imagine the deep colors that used to be there, because you can Mm. still see traces of a lot of color. And the time and the, and the effort and the artistry that went into all of that, as I said, it just 
takes your breath away. And where does this temple, I know you have saw a number of things from a number of different periods. How old are we talking about? Oh, Roughly. no, that's... Um, that's <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean exactly what year, but are we talking early kingdom, middle kingdom, late kingdom? Um, you're definitely straining my memory here. <laughs> um, I would say that this, this is middle kingdom. Okay. Would, would be my guess. Okay. Um, you remembered his wife's name, so I, I thought your memory was pretty darn good. Well, there's actually a trick to that. Okay. It took us, it took us a long time to get the distinction between Nefertari and Nefertiti. Sure. And it, it eventually it came to me. Nefertari, with an R at the end, it was the queen for Ramses, whose <laughs> name begins with R. Okay. Nefertiti was, with the T at the end, was the mother of King, of King Tut. Tut <laughs> Very good. Whose name begins with T. <laughs> okay. And that's the only way that I was able to keep them straight. So what was the biggest surprise of the trip? As I said, we've gone to a number of other ancient civilization locations throughout the world. Mm-hmm. The biggest surprise to me in Egypt was how well preserved the um, the amount of of hmm. the original architecture, the original artwork. You go to a lot of places and you see a pile of rocks on the ground, and they say that's where the temple used to be. Mm-hmm. When we were in Rome, Deborah and I hiked for probably an hour and a half to go see Circus Maximus, mm-hmm. and all that's there is a, a big open grassy park. Right, it's oval shaped. Not a single stone <laughs> remains. <Right. laughs> and we thought, wait a minute, you know, we walked all this way just to see a park in the middle of the city. Right. Whereas in Egypt, it seemed like, for whatever reason, maybe it's the dry climate, mm-hmm. the lack of earthquakes or whatever, but in Egypt, there was just a vastly larger collection of original artifacts still in their, if if not original, at least reconstructed form, Mm -hmm. and that was just totally mind-boggling to us. Hmm. Of course, it probably helps, too, that they've had almost twice as much history as so many other places, that it's so, so incredibly old. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Any particular of that first part of the cruise? Let's sort of take Egypt separately from the from the Sinai Peninsula. First of all, any particular um, tricks that you would recommend if somebody went there? Things to do, things to avoid. One of the things that was very different for us in doing this trip was we went with a well organized tour. And there were a couple of reasons. In, in the past, all of our travel has been just get on a plane and, and wing it for the most part, whereas because of the, the security issues and the safety issues in Egypt, because you actually are not allowed to just rent a car and drive from Cairo to Luxor, hmm. uh, you must join up with a police-escorted caravan. Oh when you go from one city to the next. Even the Egyptians 
um, oh, must travel in, in these caravans. And so when I started thinking about the logistics of trying to arrange all of that from halfway around the world, I said, no way, you know, put those two things together and we're going to go on an organized tour. Hmm. And one of the uh, the tour books that we got was was a Lonely Planet guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, gratuitous plug for Lonely Planet there. <laughs> oh, we plugged um, them last week too. <laughs> and uh, they made reference to Abercrombie and Kent okay. as one of the premier uh, agencies to do tours in Egypt. And we check out their website. One of the things that we particularly liked was that the tour guides were all licensed Egyptologists with at least master's degrees from the university in Cairo. Wow. And so, you know, we knew that we were going to get, you know, the real story from these people as opposed to the Rastafarian tour guide that we picked up along the side of the road when we were in Guatemala (laughs) on our way to Tulum. (laughs) Okay. So you had somebody who knew his Nefertiti from his Nefertari. Absolutely, and uh, that was definitely uh, a major part uh, of our enjoyment of this tour Uh as well. What do you wish you had known before you had gone to the Egypt part of your trip? I'm not sure what I would have been able to do different had I really known it. Mm -hmm. If you'd had more than four weeks to plan. Right. (laughs) In the tour books, and on the website, I was given the impression, of, of course I knew from all the travel I've done in the past, that under normal circumstances you cannot take photographs inside any of these architectural ruins or inside the museums or anything like that. Okay. But I was led to believe by a couple of different sources that I would be able to purchase a photographer's permit. Oh, okay. Or between 10 and $20 at each of these locations so that I would be allowed to use a camera. Well, I don't know where these people got that information, but I sure was m- totally unable to find any way to get permission to take photographs inside. Hmm. And then related to that was my fallback position has always been, well, I'll go to the gift shop and I'll buy the slides that they always have available. Sure. No slides. Really? Not a single slide to be found anywhere. Huh. So you just... Thought, well, okay, how about CDs of pictures? Okay. And, well, there were plenty of DVDs of movies of various tours through all these places, but there was nothing like just a collection of pictures Hmm. other than to buy a book and then scan the pictures out of the book. And I really found that to be disappointing. You know, my expectations had been set different than that. I brought a lot of camera gear Mm -hmm. so that I could go ahead and take pictures inside and then was not able to use it much at all. Okay. So you were left just buying postcards from the gift shop? Inter- interesting that you would mention postcards. <laughs> because I didn't realize what the gimmick was on the postcards. Okay. And, and that is, when you're at the, 
the pyramids or the sphinx or in the gift shop area around any of the temples, there are plenty of street vendors out there that are showing you this beautiful collection of 12 postcards for, you know, maybe two Egyptian pounds, which is about 50 cents. Okay. And, and they show you the postcards. You know, they unravel them or they unfold them, and they, they show you the postcards, and, you know, they look pretty good. And so, shoot, you know, for 50 cents, I'll go ahead and buy those. And then they go, you know, they don't actually give you the one that they're showing you because that's the one that they have completely unfolded. They go ahead and reach into their pocket and give you, the, you know, the sealed up version of the postcards. Mm-hmm. And when you open up that sealed package of postcards, you realize that somebody with a cheap Xerox machine <laughs> made colored copies of those professionally printed postcards, and you got something that looks like junk. <laughs> so I imagine if you had the foresight to unwrap them when they're there, do they have the good postcards? Do you even know? or They probably do not have any more than the Ouch. one good set of postcards that they're showing you. <laughs> So these that are would the be my bet. these are the street vendors out outside, right? Uh, interesting. And the merchants inside the shops, I have no reason to believe, are much different or any better. <laughs> well, that's something good to know. And the food in Egypt? The food was sustenance. <laughs> okay. Except for the very last night at the Hyatt at Sharm el-Sheikh on the Sinai Peninsula. Uh There, we had one of the best lamb dinners that we've had probably anywhere in the world. Hmm. But even at that resort, every other meal that we had was sustenance. And Sharm el-Sheikh, so you went out there, a couple questions. One is, as I understand, one of the real goals to go out there is you are a scuba diver, and and this was going to be the place that you were going to dive. But I got the impression from when we talked earlier that that didn't work out quite as well as you had hoped. No, it certainly didn't. As you said, I've, I've been scuba diving for about 12 years now, and a number of people have told me that the Red Sea is one of the premier dive locations in the world. And as far as the underwater dive is concerned, it was certainly extremely nice. As far as the entire experience was concerned, that left a lot to be desired. In, uh, in, I think what, in what way? Well, I, I think what probably has happened is that early on, the Egyptian government didn't really do much to regulate or monitor the dive industry. So there were a lot of abuses and a lot of damage was done to the coral reefs. And so they've decided to crack down. Okay. And so what that really amounted to for me was I would go down to the dive shop at the resort at 8 o'clock in the morning in order to, to check out all of the equipment that I had reserved. And from there, I was directed to get on the shuttle bus, which took 20 minutes to take me down to the central boat dock in Sharm el-Sheikh. Now, the fact that the website said that there was a boat dock 
right there at the resort led me to believe that I would be diving right there at the resort. But no, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Everybody has to go to the central dock. There were probably 30 different dive boats that were there, and everybody from all of the resorts all over Sharm el-Sheikh are all coming to this one central location, fighting through all of the total chaos to find the right boat, make sure their equipment gets on the right boat, and then the boat's jockeying for position in order to get away from the dock, only to go at maybe five knots per hour, <laughs> all the way back to the reef that was no more than 100 yards offshore from the very resort that I started at that morning. Oh, so probably by 10.30 in the morning, we were on the dive site, did a 45, maybe 50-minute dive, get back on the boat, and then they serve the snack. On most dive boats, they move the boat to the next dive location while they serve the snack. Mm -hmm. Not on this one. We sat right there for about an hour while we snacked. When everybody was finished, again, I expected that we were going to move to the next dive site, but sure. no, we went all the way back to the central dock so that we could get another set of tanks for everybody. Oh. There wasn't enough room on the boat <laughs> for two tanks for each diver. So we had to replace the tanks, and then, to my utter amazement, we went all the way back to the resort right next to <laughs> the one that we dove at that morning. So probably by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we were at our second dive site, got about 45 or 50 minutes in the water, then went all the way back to the central dock, organized all of the equipment and so on, got on a little shuttle bus, went all the way back to the resort. So from 8 o'clock in the morning till 5.30 in the evening, I got about an hour and a half's worth of bottom time in, in the Red Sea. Mm. So it was nice bottom time, but it was, <laughs> it was an awful lot of boat time. The other question I had, Sharm el-Sheikh just reminds me of security. You talked about, in Egypt, needing to go in caravan, and some questions about, is this a good time to go? And Sharm el-Sheikh actually has been the target of a terrorist bombing not that long ago. What was your perception of of safety being in either Egypt or in the Sinai this these days? The overall impression was was really one of being very safe. There was a security force that was always present, but they were not obtrusive. Okay. And, for example, when we were on the organized tours throughout all of the mainland Egypt, mm -hmm. we had a police escort on the bus, plus another police escort in a car that was either in front of or behind the bus at oh. all times. Wow. We had a police escort on the boat. And so there was always this reassurance that there was somebody there to take care of things. But again, at no time did it feel at all oppressive or intrusive. 
not like going through the airport in France a number of years ago where these 18-year-old kids with machine guns sure. are <laughs> lined up on, on either side uh, of your walkway. That was <laughs> intrusive. Uh-huh. There was nothing like that at all. Okay. When we took a private tour to Mount Sinai on our last day there, it was about a two-and-a-half-hour drive through the desert and up the mountain. There were five police checkpoints along the way. Hmm. And our guides, because they, they are guides, they're professionals, they do this all the time, they'd gone ahead and collected our names and addresses and passport numbers and so on, hmm. and they'd actually written out ten pieces of paper with all of that information on it in advance. So when we came to each of those checkpoints, both going and coming back, they just handed the piece of paper to the police officer and you know, said, hello, how are you doing today? You know, And we ended up going through very, very quickly. Hmm. Interesting. And my impression is, when you're going to Mount Sinai or Mount Moses, that you're, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, too. There are five police checkpoints in the middle of nowhere, or...? Yes. Huh. Okay. Yes, and, and the other thing that was very surprising is during this two-and-a-half-hour drive through the middle of nowhere, we probably didn't see as many as 12 other cars, vans, or buses along the way. Mm -hmm. And yet, when we got to St. Catharines on Mount Sinai, there were literally hundreds of buses oh, in the parking lot. <laughs> Where did they come from? We didn't see these guys on the road. Hmm. Interesting. We're kind of running out of time for how much time I have for in a show. Any last words of wisdom to somebody who's thinking about going to Egypt? Well, one of the things that that we found very surprising when we were in Sharm el-Sheikh which, as I said, is a very European resort town. Mm -hmm. When the native Egyptians would ask us about our trip, we would tell them that, well, this is the, the last three days of our trip. It's, it's the R&R &R at the end of a week and a half of doing all of the mainland. They all seemed truly pleased that we had come all that way to see the beauty of their entire country as opposed to just coming to sit on the beach mm. in Sharm el-Sheikh. It's like they treated us with you know, extra loving care and respect because we were driven to Egypt because of the antiquities and, and the beauty of the Nile and so on. They were hmm. very, very pleased at that. So it sounds like they have a great pride in that incredibly long, rich history. I would definitely say so. Interesting. Well, I thank you very much for coming on the show, Chuck, and for sharing some of your experiences here in Egypt. Well, thank you for inviting me. And with that... I think we're done. I have two travel resources for you today. The first one is the Podcast and Portable Media Expo. If you're interested in podcasting, not just in listening to podcasts, 
The registration has just opened up for next September's Podcast and Portable Media Expo in Ontario, California, near Los Angeles. I will be there, as well as many, many other podcasters. It's definitely the definitive event for podcasting at this time. Last year they did fill up. I was unable to go to any of the conferences because I didn't sign up soon enough. So I have my registration in, and if you're interested, let me know if you're going to be there, and we'll get a chance to meet up maybe. The second resource came in an email from David Duran from the Sounds for Sites Travel Blog and Podcast. This particular site, and I'll put links to it in the show notes, has uh, sound seeing tours. And the, David writes that now you can pick up our full-length walking tours in addition to a series of short mini-tour podcasts about sites and cities around the world. We've also incorporated some simple Google Maps functionality to help people explore the area better. So if you're interested in sound seeing tours, that's a site for you to check out. And I'll put links to that again at the show notes at amateurtraveler.com. Speaking of sound scene tours, I am hoping to record a sound scene tour this weekend. I will be in Ashland, Oregon this weekend, which is why this podcast has come out a bit early. And the next one won't, will probably come out on time, so there'll be a little bit of a delay there. But I wanted to continue my streak of getting podcasts out weekly, which now is in its 34th week. And I will be at the Ashland Shakespeare Festival. I won't just be hearing, uh, watching Shakespearean plays, but I will be watching plays in Ashland with a drama group with my kids in it. And Ashland actually has the largest Shakespeare Festival outside of Stratford-on-the-Avon in England. At least they used to, that's what I've been told. And it's a wonderful place to go, and I'll try and treat you to some of that if all my equipment works as it should. I couldn't find a song to close this episode with, And since I need to go pack, I will end without a song. I thought about using one of my own songs. I had a song that was recently played on a podcast called The Best of the Worst, uh, being nominated as one of the worst things you could download on the Internet. So maybe I won't play that tonight. But thanks for listening. The best and the brightest, served up daily by the sharpest minds in content delivery, Podshow and Limelight.